All right, John 10, uh, 22 to 42, God's word says this. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. This, this is important. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The reason why he's in there is because it's wintertime, so he would have had some protection from the cold winds of winter. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For of which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Right? The scriptures. I said to you, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, so Jesus is referring to himself, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man, that's Jesus, was true. This is important, verse 42, and many believed in him, believed in Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. I love getting together uh, with, with friends and family. Last weekend at the church, we had our first annual kind of one gathering church cookout. Many of you came and hung out with us. People made a bunch of food. We grilled up some meat, and we all eat, ate and shared food together. So, right, the company is nice and all, but I'm going to be honest with you. For me, the real love is, I love you guys, but the real love is for what? It's the food, isn't it? It's gathering around the food. And one of my favorite get-together type foods is this. It's layer dip. Do you guys know what layer dip is? Back home in Southern California, you make this layer dip. It's kind of got a Mexican flair to it, some refried beans, sour cream. You have to have the guacamole on top, some salsa, cheese. If you really want to spice it up, put some black olives on that thing, tortilla chips, bam, layer dip, right? It's, it's the best kind of get-together food. I hope today to be like a layer dip to you, that the word is like a layer dip, that there's, there's just a lot of things going on in this passage that we're going to pull apart. It may feel like a barrage of information, but hopefully at least you get some of the, the layers and you can savor the taste of what scripture has for you this morning. There's a little something in there that everyone loves this morning. We're going to have a little bit of a history lesson we're going to have some nerdy theology for you theology nerds out there. But most importantly, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus, and we're going to get a whole lot of 
the gospel. My hope is, is that everybody is edified and stirred up by this sermon this morning. This is going to be kind of a, a key focal point, these two words, actions and words. Say it with me. Good, good job. Actions and words are at the heart of this particular interaction. This, this, this section here in chapter 10 is kind of the closing bookend of what we focused on in John's gospel as the public ministry of Jesus, where he's been ministering directly to the people he came to save, the Jews. So this is kind of the end. Notice at the end of the passage, he left Jerusalem, left the temple, went back across the Jordan, and kind of went back to where he began, which is the baptism uh, by John. So this is the bookend of Jesus's public ministry as presented in John the Disciples' uh, gospel that we've been studying over the last few months. At the conclusion of this section, Jesus will, again, he'll retreat from Jerusalem, from the temple area, cross the Jordan River, heading back to where John baptized him. The place where, I want you to notice this, the place where John the Baptist, in word, with his words, right, he declared this all the way back at the beginning of John's gospel, quoting, he said, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then followed these words, right, actions and words, followed these words with the obedient act of baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River, even though John confessed himself that he felt unworthy to carry out this act, but he obeyed Jesus' command to baptize him, right? Actions and words. On the other hand now, we're confronted with the religious leaders, the Jews in this passage, devout Jews, who have largely rejected Jesus in action and words, haven't they? In action and words. They've questioned and picked up stones to threaten his life. They've called Jesus in previous passages a, a demon. And in this passage, they call him a blasphemer. And Jesus now, looking at his work in action and word, has provided, if you've been with us throughout John's gospel, has provided adequate testimony or, or proof of his messiahship that he is Lord, that he is Savior. He has fulfilled this, prophetic expectations. He's, he's, he's fulfilled what Scripture said the Savior would be like. How did he do that? He gave sight to the blind. He healed the lame. He taught with power, the Scriptures say. He has conveyed his role also as, as the advent or the bringer of new creation, and that was symbolized in his first miracle in John's Gospel when he turned the water into wine. All signs point to his function as Messiah or Savior and his claims to be more than just a mere man. I give you this truth this morning. Jesus is indeed, and we affirm this, God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. And as the season changes from the beauty of harvest fall, who here likes autumn season or fall season? Most of us do, right? Especially when you're coming out of the humid summer, it starts to cool off, the leaves change, it's beautiful, right? But what's right after fall? winter. I'm not a fan of winter. I know many of you maybe are. I'm not. And so we see kind of the, the turn from the harvest fall to the darkness of winter. That's important. John includes that detail. The time of year as winter is important. As Jesus closes out his public ministry, he's going to give us one final lesson before he retreats back across the Jordan River. One that challenges his opponents here with faith or consequences. That's the title of our sermon. It brings us to our main idea. Our main idea is this. Jesus concludes his public ministry in the darkness of winter during the Hanukkah. You guys ever heard of Hanukkah before, right? Hanukkah holiday amidst 
We see this continued skepticism. We see skepticism among the religious leaders or, or the Jews. And also at the end of the section, it says that many what? Believed. So we're seeing kind of these, these two groups together. Okay, so the, the text here that we're in this morning, it states that the time of year is the Feast of Dedication, which we know in modern times as the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Right, we likely it's the most well-known Jewish holiday uh, among us us Americans because of its proximity to what holiday? Christmas, right? So, so Christmas time may be marked with with lights, but it takes place in what season? Winter. All right, you guys are smart. We understand the the difficulty of winter to some degree in Kentucky, don't we? Right, we're we're just far enough north that the cold sets in pretty heavy at times. The the days shorten. And darkness reigns for large portions of the day. That's, that's what winter is, is that the, days, the daylight hours are shorter than the darkness hours. And so we also know this in Kentucky, that usually winter sets in this kind of cold, damp, gray time of year. Isn't everything's just kind of gray. All the leaves have fallen off. It's not as beautiful as it is in the spring and summer and autumn here. And so you have this kind of just dark time period from December to February, and we get the, the picture of darkness setting in. I want you to get this picture as Jesus prepares to depart Jerusalem for the final time before his inevitable trial. You see the light of the world leaving Jerusalem, going across the Jordan. Darkness is setting in. We'll look at verses uh, 22, 23, and then skip down to 40 to 42. We're going to kind of see both pictures here. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Okay, now skipping to the end. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. There he remained and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man, that's Jesus, was true. And many believed in him there. So we're seeing two responses. We're going to get into two responses towards Jesus and his ministry. But first, okay. We have, I told you, it's like a layer dip. We got to do some nerdy stuff first, okay? So here's some, who here are history buffs? Who here likes history? I know I got a few of you out in there, out in the, in the crowd that like history. So here's some quick history from extra biblical sources, because I think it's going to help us to understand the meaning of this passage uh, as the Feast of Dedication noted here came about in the, the intertestamental period of Jewish history. What is the intertestamental period? It's the time that goes between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a few hundred years. We call that the intertestamental period of Jewish history. Okay, And this feast, the Feast of Dedication, or what we know as Hanukkah, is not a feast that we find really prescribed in the Old Testament text, but now during Jesus's ministry, it's observed, okay? What's the history of this feast of, of Hanukkah, in a sense? About 2,300 years ago, so a long, long time ago, a man named Alexander the Great. You guys ever heard of Alexander the Great? Yes, okay. Alexander the Great rose to power. He conquered much of the Palestinian landscape, including what we know now as modern Israel, but Alexander's reign was somewhat of a benevolent rule in that he allowed kind of local customs and religious practices to remain. So he allowed the Jews to continue to practice their religion. But also, during this time, the Jews began to assimilate or become more like the Greek culture that Alexander brought into that area. In, in academia, we call these Hellenized Jews. 
They were Hellenized Jews. They became like the Greek culture. When I say Hellenized, I'm not meaning like hell. The, the term hellos is actually ancient Greek for of Greece. So they were of Greece. So they kind of assimilated to the worldly culture that began to come around them. So then, fast forward 100 years. After this, a man named Antiochus rose to power, and he hated Jews and was power-hungry. And he placed, notice this, Hellenized or, or Greek-assimilated priest over the Jewish temple. Okay, If you don't know, the temple was really important in Jewish culture. And he called for these Hellenized priests to desecrate the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar. If you don't know, this is kind of a big no-no according to Old Testament law and Scripture. Now, fast forward, we're, uh, we are New Covenant believers, thank the Lord, because I love pork meat. Who's with me, right? Just a few days ago, I smoked about 30 pounds of pork butt, shredded that thing up. We had pork sandwiches yesterday. I love pork meat. But back now in this time, like sacrificing a pig on the altar in the temple, no good. Okay, we clear on that. Everybody tracking. Good. And Antiochus also did many other grievous practices in and around the temple. Why am I telling you all this information? It's important. Okay, just wait. So what happens is, is devout Jews rose up in revolt under the leadership of two men, uh, two notable men in Jewish history, Mattathias the Hasmonean, and this name may ring about Judah the Maccabee, Judah Maccabee. Okay, and they led what's called the Maccabean Revolt driving out the well-armed Syrian soldiers. It was kind of, it was a miracle, basically, that they were able to do this, and they took back control of the temple, rededicating it in what time of year, right? The dead of winter, and the Lord worked a miracle in that time when they found only one jar of consecrated oil to keep the menorah burning. That's the importance of light during the Hanukkah festival. It should, the, the one uh, jar of oil should have only lasted for just a short while, but it burned for eight days until more oil could be brought into the temple. And the temple was cleansed, it was rededicated, and the Jews celebrate with lighting the menorah as it is now known as the Festival of Lights. And that's how we have Hanukkah or this feast of dedication that Jesus is now a part of in this present passage. So, Fast forwarding now back into John chapter 10 in our present passage, about 160 years have passed after the Maccabean revolt. Jesus is on the scene during this feast, during this commemorative festival. So I think layer dip again. So we had our history nerds, our theological nerds now. We're going to get some theology nerd stuff here this morning. Theology nerds like myself, what a beautiful fulfillment of the feast that we find in Jesus being present in this time. Pay attention to these things. The true temple of God, Jesus, has arrived on the temple grounds. Right? Remember, church, we've learned this. Temple simply means a place where God's presence dwells. That was the importance of the temple, that God's presence dwelt there. Jesus is, we know this, God in the flesh. So God is in the midst of his people. He's dwelling with his people. He is a human temple. Furthermore, we know that Hanukkah is the festival of lights. What's the title of Jesus that we have? He is the what? Light of the world. Is now present at the festival of lights. Finally, 
As the Maccabean militia consecrated the temple for proper use once again, Jesus, the author of Hebrews notes this, Jesus is the once and for all consecration, sacrifice, cleansing for those who place their faith and trust in his work. In a sense, Jesus is the greater Maccabean revolt, the ultimate fulfillment of this important piece of Jewish history. So then, you may be thinking, what in the world is the point of all this information? What can we learn from this section, right? Getting into the passage as, as John has... Per- See, the reason why I give you all that information is John has written his gospel in a way that these points are important to us in our understanding and interpretation of what he is teaching us in this section of Scripture. John has purposefully shared with us this bookend, again, in Jesus' ministry, placed during the Festival of Lights and consecration. We find this, and we got three points this morning consequences, both negative and positive in our present life that have eternal effects, everlasting effects. So the first consequence is this. We see the consequence of skepticism, the consequence of skepticism. Skepticism of Jesus has reigned in the hearts of most of the Jewish leadership and general population. And it also reigns in the hearts of some of you in this room today. You're skeptical of the claims of Jesus and maybe the the claims of the Christian worldview. And there, and there are consequences for continued unbelief and skepticism of Jesus. We'll look at John 10, 24 to 26. It says this, So the Jews gathered around him, that's Jesus, and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Like, let's pause there. If you've been with us in our journey through John's gospel, how many times has this question been presented to Jesus? Right, A number of times they've, Hey, would you just tell us who you, who you are? And Jesus keeps telling them over and over and showing them. He's, he's shown in right, what, action and word, hasn't he? He's already proven who he is. Jesus answered them. He'll say as such, I told you and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The approach of the Jewish leaders is actually a little bit more direct than our English translation lends us when they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? It could actually be translated this, Jesus, how long are you going to annoy us with your presence? That's harsh. They're, They're skeptical of the claims of Jesus and his followers. But indeed, he he's granted sufficient evidence for an accurate and right conclusion. He's proven through action and deed that he is indeed the Messiah or the Savior. In fact, this this is the purpose of John's gospel. This isn't in your notes, but uh, if you were to fast forward to the end of John's gospel, in chapter 20, verse 30, John says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may, here's the purpose, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and then this is the consequence of that. And that by believing, you may have life, eternal life, abundant life in his name. So my hope in preaching John's gospel to to you is, one, to build up believers, to grant you confidence in your relationship with Jesus, and to give you confidence to share your belief in Jesus as the Son of God, and number two, to draw the skeptic into a saving relationship with God through the influence and power of God's Holy Spirit. To be clear, I want to be absolutely clear, I hope to persuade you in preaching this gospel to believe in Jesus. 
There, there's sufficient evidence for belief, and even more so now for us, fast-forwarding 2,000 years later, insofar as we have to deal not only with Jesus' words and actions, but we also have to deal with that all of human history is ordered around what event? The resurrection. We count our years from the time that Jesus was on earth. We also have to deal with this, with the historicity of the empty tomb, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, this is what happened. Jesus died bodily and rose from the dead. That is proven, in fact, by the, by the empty tomb. There's no sufficient explanation for the empty tomb other than that Jesus raised from the dead. And also, if that's not enough, thousands of eyewitnesses claim to have seen the risen Christ, and they willingly gave up their, their lives for this claim. They gained no, no worldly power, no money, no prestige for claiming that Jesus had raised from the dead. You know what they received? Death. And they held, who would die for a lie? I'm not going to. But they willingly laid down their life for this truth. They gained no worldly treasure for following Jesus. They followed because they witnessed the risen Jesus. But we know from from the unbelieving Jews that the consequence of skepticism is the realization that belief in Jesus is not merely an, an intellectual or rational exercise, but it's also, hear this, it's also something that's deeply spiritual. It's deeply spiritual. Jesus says this, the sheep hear his voice and they follow him for they know his voice. We need the power of the spirit of God to help us hear the voice of Jesus calling. And I would say this is a divine mystery of of God, of how this works, that we must of our own will come to the Lord and the Lord must also call us to him. It's deeply spiritual. So I I call out to the skeptic, come awake to the saving power of Jesus and receive him. Recognize the overwhelming evidence of Jesus as the Son of God through his words, actions, and this, I would say the most important piece of evidence, the powerful evidence that he did indeed die on the cross, went into the grave, and he raised from the dead. Believe in him as Lord and Savior. And convey this belief through a life of obedience to his commands. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, uh, verse 21 and, and verse 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Hear this. But the one who does, okay, obeys the will of the Father who is in heaven. Jesus will then say this to those who do not. Jesus will say, and then I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just a hint. You don't want to hear that. The consequences of skepticism, right? The gift of eternal life is available to you now. You only need believe in Jesus. Consequence number two, we have the consequence of faith. The consequence of faith. All right, the last point's heavy, isn't it? Now I hope to present a point that is joyful to you, should be encouraging to you, edifying to you, stirring you up, because it's saturated with gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news, right? It's saturated with the good news of Jesus, verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. No, this is, underline this next section here. There's some important promises that were given. Jesus says this, I give them, what? Eternal life. This is another promise. And they will never perish. And a third promise, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My father, now Jesus is going to reiterate that last promise. He says it twice. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. Notice again, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I, now he makes a crazy claim. I and the father are one. I am God. This is what Jesus is saying. I have the authority to say these things. So what, what is meant by consequence in this point here is a positive connotation. Jesus gives us three positive consequences or promises through him. The first is this, everlasting life. He, he gives us the positive consequence of faith through Jesus. His sheep have everlasting life. We can call this eternal life, abundant life. And I want to say this, it begins now in the presence of Jesus. There's no delayed gratification of abundant or eternal life. Although things will certainly get better, we know that, upon death or the return of Christ. The old saying rings true for a Christian in this present life is the closest to hell you will ever experience. Through Jesus, we have the promise of eternal, everlasting, abundant life. And this is proven by the resurrection of Jesus. This is the importance that it backs up his claims that he is indeed God. And he now currently in this time is enjoying full glorification, a perfected body that is not marred by the fallen effects of of this present creation. Anybody wake up this morning and they're a little bit achy? Bones cracking? Through Christ, your body will be glorified. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Everlasting, eternal, abundant life is a promise that Jesus gives to those who are his brothers and sisters. Number two, protection. We have protection. You may think, what kind of protection are we talking about? Because I pray for and I've heard of Christians persecuted around the world, put to death for their faith. How are we protected? When I say protection, I mean two things. Number one, we have protection against anything that is outside the will of God. Okay, let me put this plainly to you. God's in control. God's in charge. Nothing operates outside of his will. Number two, through Jesus, we have protection in this way against the judgment of God. How does this happen? Jesus has taken the judgment on our behalf and has reconciled us to the Father that is God. We are given the gift of his righteousness. We think of this as clothing. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith, not by works. So that God's judgment, if we think back to the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt, God did, so he sent some crazy plagues on Egypt and the last of which we call the Passover, right? That God came through and anybody that didn't have the blood of the lamb on their door, that doorpost, their firstborn was taken from them. God's wrath was poured out in that place. If you were covered by the blood, God passed over you. We are in Christ covered by his blood so that God's judgment passes over the Christ follower. This isn't in your notes, but at the beginning of Romans 8, I quote this often, it's one of my favorite verses, Paul says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And later he reiterates this point in verse 35 and 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Which he answers with a resounding what? No, 
In all these things, we are, this is, a, this is an awesome title. You have this in Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You are protected by God. Lastly, this is the third promise that we have. We have the promise of perseverance. We have the promise of perseverance in our faith. If you are truly in Christ, nothing can strip you away from him. It cannot be stolen away if you abide in him, meaning rest in his work. If you obey him and walk with him by the power of his spirit, you will persevere. Verse 38 and 39 in in Romans chapter 8. Says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, right? A pretty comprehensive claim, isn't it? In all creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the reason why Jesus reiterates two times this promise that no one will snatch away his sheep that you will persevere in the faith if you are truly in Christ. Which brings us to our third consequence. We see the consequence of Jesus' claims. Consequence of Jesus' claims. Now, I need some buy-in from all of you out there, okay? We've been going a little bit. This last section gets a little bit complicated, okay? I coach boys' soccer right now at halftime, they're all crazy when they come off the field, and I look at them, and I do the, you know, hey, focus, okay? So can you guys focus with me on this last section here? Focus on this last section of Scripture here and follow along. I'm going to pause and kind of try to explain what's going on. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, For which of them are you going to stone me? So Jesus is kind of laying a challenge out there, isn't he? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, that he calls himself God. Because you, being a man, right? They don't get it. They don't understand who Jesus is. Make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Now, in your Bibles, if you have a reference Bible, you'll notice this next section that Jesus himself is going to quote Old Testament Scripture. He's quoting from Psalm 82. And he says this. I'm going to explain the context in just, just a second. He says, I said you are gods. This is quoting Psalm 82. Now Jesus is going to start explaining. If he called them gods to whom the Word of God, the Bible, came... Then he throws this in there, and Scripture cannot be broken, so <laughs> calling a timeout, right? I can't call a timeout in a soccer game, so it's a football game now. Timeout. I'm going to give this one to you for free. It has nothing to do with our sermon this morning, but Jesus says here, and Scripture cannot be broken. That's important. Jesus here is upholding the authority of the Word of God and the continuity of it, that it can't be broken. It doesn't contradict itself. Okay, back into the passage. Time in, right? Moving on. Do you say of him whom the Father... So now Jesus is talking about himself. Do you say of him, of me, whom the Father consecrated? Consecrated means set apart and sent into the world. Quote, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. So I'm going to pause. 
This can get a bit confusing. I'm going to explain. In the context now of Psalm 82, what in the world is going on? That the psalm addresses the unjust judges, kings, prophets, and priests of Israel that were taking advantage of weak people. It's supposed to be a psalm to encourage weak people to be built up. And in that section of scripture, the unjust judges, kings, prophets, and priests are called gods. Notice it's lowercase, little g gods. And Jesus is claiming here, basically, I'll put it in modern speech, why are you so bent out of shape if the true son of God, proven by actions and words, calls himself the son of God when scripture called the unjust judges, kings, and priests, little g gods? Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, right, at least believe the works that you may know. This is the purpose that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father, that the works will lead you to belief in Jesus. Again, right, do they respond well? No. Again, they sought to arrest him, but Jesus is powerful because what happens? He escaped from their hands. Jesus is giving a make or break claim. Here, here at the end of his public ministry, he's yielding to their demand, right? It's time. I'm telling you clearly who I am. He's likened himself to the Father by doing the works of the Father, right? Going back to the beginning, I said what? Actions and words. Actions and words. If you've journeyed with us through John's gospel thus far, Jesus has, I'm certain of this, he's provided adequate testimony, proof of his work as Messiah due to his actions and his words. And there's going to be consequences now for this statement that he has made, that the Father is in him and he is in the Father, that they are one. Jesus is God in the flesh, and this statement will be consequential for Jesus it will ultimately cost him his life. But let's be clear. Jesus doesn't just allow anyone to take it in their human will or power. The Bible here says that he escaped from their hands. As we've seen previously, no one has the power, hear this, no one has the power to take the life of Jesus. In 2004, there was a great controversy when Mel Gibson led the, the making of the movie. Remember, The Passion of the Christ, right? You guys remember that movie? And there was a controversy that the movie would portray Jews in too negative of a light and, and that there would be kind of anti-Semitic feelings towards them, which is, it was understandable. But the reality is this, that ultimately, the Jews didn't take the life of Jesus. They don't have that much power. He laid it down of his own will and plan. And to that, the Romans didn't take it from him. God, in his divine forbearance, planned this momentous event. The crowd that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, didn't have the final say, for they didn't have the authority to wage that kind of uh, verdict. Only God can, and only God does. But your mind say, may say, why? Why did God lay this verdict on his son? Why the consequence for Jesus' claims? Why the trial? Why the blood? Why the gruesome death? It is this. It is the collision of sin and death and the powerful love of God. 
John's gospel said earlier in John 3.16, what's beautiful, this wasn't planned, the revelators sang a song quoting John 3.16. Now it's here in the sermon. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that what? That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but what will they have? Eternal life, right? Abundant life, everlasting life. The consequence of Jesus's life and his claim was to give his life, as Mark notes in his gospel, as a, I love this, as a ransom for many, he said. But I still haven't answered the why. This is the why. We don't. Humans, in our own power and control, have the ability to live up to the standards of God. We are fallen, sinful, right? There's the S word. We're sinful. We witness the effects. How do I know there's sin? We witness the effects of this in the world around us that is filled with corruption and hurt and pain and emotional strain. That's why there's people starving in the streets in some parts of the world. We, we see it not only in our actions, but also in sins against us. Who here has been sinned against? I have. Been lied to. Been mistreated. Been hurt. Been taken advantage of. We've been hurt by others. We've experienced ourselves the fallen nature of this present world. So if you can't come to grips with your own sin, come to grips with the sin that's been brought against you. We need an answer. Here's the answer. His name is Jesus. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus came some 2,000 years ago. He took on human flesh. He lived life as a man, fully man, fully God. He lived perfectly in our place. He fully obeyed the law of God, even unto death. He obeyed the will of God. He died on the cross. Jesus went into the grave on the third day. He raised from the dead in victory over sin and death. And you want to know where Jesus is at right now? He ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father where he is right now ruling and reigning over all things. Now, I admit there's not much practical application today other than to do this, to think about the actions and words of Jesus and how they prove his claims and how he affects, this is your application, how he affects our actions and our words how he affects the way that we live. And so the question is this, Christian, will you be built up today by the power of his word? There's a second question. Skeptic, will you wrestle again with the claims of Christianity and finally surrender your life 